Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that informs you about political happenings and then avoids going to ZZs in case I've said too much. This is episode 94, I'm Tian and Duyeb, and how depressing that it seems like Russia are killing off people with intelligence but allowing those without to be US president. Yes, UK politics has quickly gone from a National Lampoon tribute to a John le Carre novel to a John le Carre novel adapted by National Lampoon, all within a week. Former Russian intelligence official Sergei Skripal and his daughter are still in a critical condition in hospital after poisoning from a nerve agent. And within hours of that news, Foreign Secretary and T-bone stake that someone punched eyes into, Boris Johnson, was properly and correctly doing his job of tempering foreign relations with caution by immediately threatening Russia that if they're behind the attack, England will pull out of the World Cup. Oh, I bet they're quaking in their boots. I mean, that's like threatening to not go to a party you weren't invited to. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is a great excuse. I mean, considering how England have been playing at the moment, I wouldn't put it past Gareth Southgate to have poisoned Skripal himself just to save them an awkward few weeks. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova, who looks unbelievably like she's about to give orders to Kylo Ren, said that Boris Johnson's comments were wild. Now, I've not seen that film, but I understand it's about a blonde wandering off by themselves into miles of dangerous territory, so I guess that sounds about right. Is anyone ever actually threatened by Boris? I mean, him threatening Russia feels a lot like an overfed stupid hamster telling a bear to back off. Boris's threats were matched by Shadow Chancellor and man who always looks like he'll give you far too long an answer if you ask how he is, John McDonnell, who told Russia that he won't be making any more appearances on state-owned news network Russia Today. Oh, terrifying. What next, John? Tell them you'll only give their podcast three-star ratings. The incident is being dealt with by counter-terrorism police, though that is largely because they're the only ones with resources to do so. And Home Secretary and your neighbour that if you see them going into their house, you stay indoors for an extra five minutes to avoid talking to them, Amber Rudd, led an emergency Cobra meeting because, you know, hey, anything to not talk about Brexit for a bit. One week later, all the people who visited the Salisbury ZZ's restaurant on the day when the poisoning is thought to have happened are only now being told to be careful and wash all their clothes and belongings. 
Yeah, a whole week later. And that is what happens when you outsource all your forensics to a private firm who had to be bailed out by the police forces only a month ago because they financially collapsed and the Home Office refused to help. Yeah, really. But also, I mean, are you even remotely surprised the government aren't interested in helping gather evidence for something? I mean, their version of Colombo involves everyone seeing who did it straight away and then various Conservative MPs spending an hour saying it was Labour or the EU or immigrants or poor people and then nothing gets done. So either the privatisation of the police forensics unit is why public health and safety warnings have taken a week, or maybe Conservative-led Salisbury Council have realised that they might not need to up council tax by £180 if they just let a ton of them die off. Also, I learned this week that Zizi is French for Willy. I'll let you do your own jokes about people who like to eat there. You're welcome. Prime Minister and vampire constantly reacting to sunlight, Theresa May, has said that it is highly likely Moscow are behind the attack, which is a very vague way of saying it's them what done it. Oh, uh, it's kind of, sort of, probably, maybe them that did it, because we know for sure, you know, it wasn't done by an angry giraffe or Noel Edmonds, so who else was it going to be? May said either Russia did it intentionally or they lost control of their nerve agent. You know, like you do, sitting in Azizis, scoffing on a Sophia Rustica and whoops, I've dropped my highly deadly nerve agent all over that poor fella's mixed olives but I won't let him know as I'm sure he won't mind. Labour leader and pinto bean with eyes, Jeremy Corbyn, has been accused of politicising the incident by bringing up in the Commons the £820,000 of donations that the Conservatives have accepted from Russian oligarchs since May became PM and suggested that cutting them off would make a statement against Russia. Ah, silly Corbyn. It's only fun politicising spy activity in the UK when it's done by making up stories about Jezza sending intelligence to check spies and then having to apologise for them on Twitter. Russia have, of course, denied any involvement in the attack because they would either way, but who else would it be and why? Unless this is all some sort of elaborate cover-up so no one realises is actually the Home Office's new test run of what to do with foreign-born citizens. Meanwhile, Labour continue to assassinate their own party as Sally Hawkins' worst role, Debbie Abrahams, has been forced to resign as Shadow Secretary of State of Work and Pensions due to being accused of bullying, something that she denies and says actually she is a victim of bullying. And this poses a problem as you're meant to stand up to bullies, but if she stands up to her bullies and those she is allegedly bullies stand up to her, then they'll all be intimidated by each other and will be back to square one. This news came as Servation Polls, the only group to correctly predict last year's election, now show Labour at a seven-point lead ahead of the Conservatives. Great, so now all they have to do is freeze all political thought and events until 2022, and they should be dandy. Jeremy Corbyn was in Dundee for the Scottish Labour conference, where, as part of his speech, he said Brexit would deliver the benefit of preventing firms importing cheap labour to undercut UK workers, something that isn't a thing and has never been a thing. It is weird that he cheapens Labour with incorrect comments about cheap Labour. Many have compared Corbyn to UKIP for making such comments, which is depressing, but I wonder if it's actually a super smart plan to gain back both bigot racist voters, but also any former Labour voters who dislike Corbyn, and hope that with this new UKIP stance there'll be at least five other leaders over the next 18 months. Labour also planned to boost the Scottish economy with £70 million, as John McDonnell told the conference Labour is coming for power in Holyrood, which seems a really odd way to do it, and it definitely won't help the past year's allegations of inappropriate behaviour. Meanwhile, Chancellor Philip Hammond has rejected calls to announce the end of austerity in his spring statement, instead saying there is light at the end of the tunnel, but we are still in the tunnel at the moment, which explains why he constantly looks as though he's not seen sunlight for years. 
Champion of human wrongs, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman met Theresa May despite growing concerns, and I understand that as no one here is sure about her either. May signed a £100 million deal with Saudi Arabia for humanitarian aid, which I can only guess is to allow the Crown Prince to keep oppressing Yemen more effectively, therefore really making sure charities don't lose their jobs. May defended the agreement by saying the UK's relationship with Saudi is a historic one, and I agree, it definitely feels like something we should be learning about in schools in order to make sure it never happens again. In the US, President Glengarry Glenn Gross, Donald Trump, has agreed to meet with North Korean leader and grumpy Kirby, Kim Jong-un, in what's being held as a milestone meeting, probably because it'll be the closest anyone's ever come to meeting themselves. And the Chinese government have voted to abolish the two-term rule, meaning President Xi Jinping can be president for life and not just for Christmas. The Chinese government have hit back at all commentators who say this is a return to personalistic rule by saying that everyone who says that is a shameless naysayer, because there is nothing that prevents it seeming like an authoritarian dictatorship than claiming all the press are liars. Xi Jinping is regularly known or promoted as Uncle Xi, and you see, listeners, that is exactly the result of when people aren't allowed to Google what happened in The Lion King. Hey, hey, Megapods. How's you? I, I do need a better name for you listeners. I mean, I thought I'd try Megapods. It doesn't really work, does it? I mean, for a start, it's a type of Australian bird. Uh, secondly, you're not the pods. This is the pods. I'm thinking... I might have to go back to Parpol Bros, but that is very gender-specific. This is hard. Any suggestions, do send them to where the jingle shall tell you to uh, very soonish. As you can probably tell, this week's podcast is here, which means Tiny Duyev is not here yet, which is hugely rude of them. I mean, we had the due date in our calendar for months, but could our baby keep their appointment? No, absolutely not. Uh, First thing I'm doing when they arrive is buying them a calendar. Um, So anyway, myself and my wife are now in what I like to call the boring waiting bit. Uh, Lots of people have given us tips on how to help induce labour and get it hurrying up, uh, all the way from eating pineapple to apparently lots of sex, which I think just makes the baby come out sort of out of disgust, hoping that maybe you'll stop it if they arrive. Um, And eating lots of spicy food uh, is another suggestion, because I imagine nothing helps a woman go through giving birth like also having the ring of fire to take her mind off it. Um, Anyway, uh, we're mainly walking around a lot and watching a lot of TV and then complaining about how unfun it is while fully aware that as soon as Tiny Dooyeb makes an appearance we'll be very much missing all of those things. So, anyway, um, all I'm saying is who knows if there's going to be an episode next week. No one. Um, But uh, there is no admin this week. I am now only $85 away from the Patreon target that I set over two years ago. So, hey, that is faster progress than a post-Brexit UK. But look, if you can even spare a teeny, teeny donation, please, please, do as it really does help me justify spending an entire Monday on this show rather than say doing all the other work I should be doing or you know helping my wife walk up and down the stairs 30 times. Um, the Patreon is of course at www.patreon.com forward slash bro and if you can only do a one-off donation then buy me a coffee that I'll probably really need very soon at kofi ko-fi.com forward slash bro and if you can't do either of those things then don't worry we can still be friends but firstly I really don't want any more friends I've been working very hard at getting rid of some of them recently and secondly do instead tell other people that you think might like this podcast about it please that would be a huge help um i find podcast listener numbers generally very baffling and i have to say there is a very very nice amount of you out there um but last week's show had a dip uh no idea why my opening gag though was hella shit so it might have been that um but also very weird things um in listener numbers like the bonus episode with bob singer a few weeks ago got 100 more listens than the main episode with bob singer so what is 
going on. A hundred people just wanted to hear the deleted scenes, but none of the main content. Who are you? And how do you watch films? Baffling. But overall, there's more and more of you every week. And that is amazing. And I'm super chuffed. And I'm very, very glad you're here. I mean, you're not here. That would be weird. Um, I wouldn't need to record it and just shout it at you. But anyway, if you could persuade even more people to listen, then I've got even more reason to keep doing this show because I am that sort of shallow. Oh, and I know you've been waiting for the admin jingle this week, so uh, just for you, this time, it's like this. Thank you very much for listening to the show. Here's some things you should know. If you want to donate to Papo Bro, then do it at the sites out now below. Patreon.com forward slash Bro. Kofi.com forward slash Bro. But what if you want to review the show? Well, do it on iTunes or places you know. What if I want to say hello? Go to the Twitter at Bro or the Facebook group whose title is long or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com Love you. So on this week's show, there's two sorts of interviews as I chatted with Dave Pickering about his new book, Mansplaining Masculinity, which is about men's rights. But 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 before you switch off, not in a scary Philip Davis way. Trust me, it is fascinating. Um, and that interview is so long that I'm going to release about 20 more minutes of it immediately after releasing this podcast on a separate extra bonus podcast. And that way, if you want to listen to more Dave Pickering, you can. And if not, you don't have to. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not your dad. I'm still not a dad yet. Oh, God, why won't my baby hurry up and get here. Um, then I also caught up with Charlotte Chorley at What Women Want 2.0, who I interviewed back in November on episode 80, if any of you remember that. And the report that What Women Want were compiling uh, was presented to Parliament last week. So Charlotte has very kindly given us a quick update on it all. Uh, yes, it's all gender politics this week, because apparently intensive discussions on sex-based social structures sells. That's the phrase, right? I'm sure I've got this right. Uh, also, of course, there is some Brexit fallout, because it's all over the news like an unwanted rash covering up everything else. And, oh God, I wish there was a cream to fix it because damn it's dull quarter eurozone anyone but first before that this way back in episode 80 do you remember then? Oh, back in them old days, I interviewed Charlotte Chorley at What Women Want 2.0, who told me all about their survey of over 8,000 women, which was an update of a groundbreaking historical feminist survey that took place in 1996. What Women Want 2.0 asked women who took the survey, well, sort of like it says on the tin, what they want uh, in terms of life and society and aspirations, that is. Not, say, a drinks order or what they want for lunch, because that wouldn't be that helpful, and then they'd have to wait ages for it to get to them because they'd have to go through all the report detail. Anyway, look, do go back and listen to that very fascinating chat uh, on episode 80 for a more in-depth discussion about how the original survey went and what the new ones sought to find out and then how they went about it all, as well as a very fascinating chat that we had about gender inequality issues and more. The report was launched in Parliament last week on March the 7th, just before International Women's Day, and was hosted by Shami Chakrabarti with a ton of guest speakers. And I really wanted to go, but I was on Baby Watch, so I couldn't. Boo! But the next best thing, though, is that I asked Charlotte if she'd just kindly give me a quick update on how the launch went and what the findings of the report were. And luckily, she agreed. So here is a very quick chat with Charlotte. 
thanks very much for talking with me again and congratulations on launching the report yesterday. I've seen a lot of the, the pitches on Twitter um, and it looked like it all went brilliantly. So how, how did it go? It was, uh, yeah, it was a really amazing night. Um, kind of weird to see a year uh, year of kind of work culminate um, and kind of end, which was a bit sad, but um, also a really joyous thing. Um, so, yeah, we kind of... Uh, had a had a packed room in Parliament, which was really impressive. I think the event um, sort of booked out pretty quickly when we put it up last week. Um, so we knew there was quite a lot of people who were interested in hearing uh, about what women want. Um, and then, yeah, we had um, a selection of authors who contributed to the report, talking um, on their selected topics uh, from a range and they're from a, a range of uh, celebrated backgrounds. Um, and they each did a, a bit of a speech for about five minutes, um, and then there was a bit of an open Q and A. Uh, and then we had a cross-party panel debate uh, with representatives from uh, the Lib Dems, Labour, uh, Conservative, and uh, SNP. Um, and that was much more of a kind of interactive Q and A where members of the audience could uh, could challenge the the MPs on sort of issues that were highlighted in the report um, and sort of like hold them to account, which was really great. It was a really energetic uh, atmosphere, a lot of positivity, a lot of love in the room. Um, so yeah, it, we're, we're really proud of how, how how it went. That's fantastic, and you're you're top trend in London, I understand, on Twitter yeah. as well. I know. Who knew? Um, yeah, we kind of found out halfway through that um, yeah we were trending on Twitter, which was amazing. That's very exciting. Um, well, I, I had a chance to sort of read through the report this afternoon, which I have to say, firstly, is brilliantly put together. Um, and I found it uh, very eye-opening, very educating. Um, and I just thought, that, well, a lot of the content is very interesting. But I, before I sort of tell you about what I found exciting, what did you? What do you feel that, um, that you've all found out from the report? What do you think the most fascinating findings are from it? Yeah. Um, I think that we were... Um, Interested to see like how little had had changed in the twenty years since the previous one in nineteen ninety six. There were a lot of similar similarities in the responses that people gave. So things around um, equal pay, um, sort of representation in the media, violence against women, um, which in a way, yeah, was quite was quite sad to see that there was so much that still hadn't hadn't changed. Um, for me, like one of the noticeable things was the lack of kind of. Um, focus on political representation so in 1996 one of the key things was um was sort of like equal representation or um better representation in parliament and other political bodies and that didn't really come out as a kind of key theme um which i don't know whether that's like a good thing or a bad thing but it's definitely something that's interesting um on that um and i think another thing is that um when you read the report and you read the kind of uh, essays which i think offer a kind of more uh in-depth and intimate evaluation of, of the themes, um, there's a lot of optimism in there. Um, so even though it's things sort of highlighting, for example, you know, discrepancies in pay or um, the, the sort of detrimental effects of austerity on women, like there, there's still this kind of optimism that things can change and things get can get better. And I think that also really came through in the, in the event that there was... Um, a kind of righteous anger, but a sort of channeling, channeling of women's voices and, and strength into one collective cause, which was amazing to see. Yeah, it's, I, I found it very fascinating how many, um, and, and really heartwarming and life-affirming how many uh, women were, you know, hoping for world peace and hoping for kind of equality everywhere and globally and for all people. You know, it's, it's a very, there's a lot of very universal caring going on yeah, in there. Definitely. And I think that's one of, that, that also came out of the key kind of um, discussion yesterday in that um, there's a real need to highlight 
the invisible women um, who don't often get sort of to have their voices heard. So that's like women in detention centers, like Yalta, for example, women like refugees, um, there's a whole range. I think, I think we as a generation are so much more connected with the world around us and so much more aware of the issues that, um, sort of unite us. Um, and yeah, that, that kind of came out as a, as a key theme, this idea of like human rights for everyone, which was, um, was really great. Yeah, there's also one of the things I found quite um, interesting because there's a lot of issues that have been uh, in the news lately, a lot of issues about the way that society represents women, about um, the lack of equal pay. Um, so there's there's things like that that we are or, or people have been aware of because of recent news. But there was actually a lot of um, comments in the report that are about how hard austerity has hit women. And that's something I don't feel that I hear very or that personally I don't hear very often in the news. Um, you know, a lot not just about uh, in, in all aspects of work from sort of big be, uh, women that are carers to um the lack of pension you know that it was it was quite interesting how many of the sort of recent uh, proposals or policies seem to have hit women the hardest according to the you know according to the data from this yeah definitely i think um that really came out um so polly neat who um is chief executive of shelter re spoke really eloquently about it yesterday and in, in her essay um and really highlighted i think um, when we hear about austerity in the news, there is kind of a, quite a broad stroke approach and um, actually adding some nuance into that and delving a little bit deeper and actually looking at um, sort of who is affected most. And that is sort of um, women from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, single mothers, um, people from sort of, yeah, disadvantaged areas. And like, we don't talk about that enough. We can't, And we kind of also, I think, have got into a mindset, well, certainly... Um, politics has that austerity is the right option um and i think yesterday some of the conversations were sort of challenging that and sort of saying you know there are there are other ways to kind of remove people out of poverty and, and address um the detrimental effect of austerity on women um but yeah and i think that that was a, it was kind of a key thing as well that was sort of posed to the mps on the panel um forcing them to kind of acknowledge that you know sometimes the policies do hit different groups harder Sure. What was the uh, out of interest? What was their response? Was there any interesting response from the MPs on that? I think there was. I think there was an acknowledgement um, that yes, it it does hit harder, and I think um, they all kind of acknowledged the benefit of having events like this and having sort of research like this that actually involves women in it. I think that there's there's a kind of um, lack of consultation with women on policies, and I, that you know if women's voices were elevated or listened to or taken more seriously, I don't think that we would be in a situation where um, we do have such sort of uh, bad measures. Um, so, yeah, I think people, all of the people on the panel kind of recognised it and um, were willing to listen to the people who were there and like, listen to women more generally. And I, I mean, this is such a fascinating sort of cross section. You've got um, women of all ages have responded, women yeah. from all uh, sort of economic uh, areas. You know, it, it, it's it's an incredible cross section. It was, it was 8,749. Was that the right amount? I think I've got that right. <laughs> the exact numbers. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know that it's sort of to get it, there were so many common themes, which is just fascinating to know that women from all ages and all areas are concerned about. Uh, very much the same things I guess there's you know it, there's not been a study like this since 20 years ago when you did it the first time so the question is now that you've got all this data and obviously you presented it brilliantly in this report but what happens next what what is this data going to be used for are MPs going to look at it directly where, where, where does it go 
Yeah, so we, uh, I think we're currently debating the, the next steps of the project. I mean, obviously, um, this has been run in the latter stages by a volunteer team. So there's that to kind of factor in. But um, we kind of, we hope to take what we've learned in the survey and build a toolkit to support other people um, across the country to replicate it in their own communities. So um, we have this idea of kind of having different chapters. So like, a, you know, maybe next year we'll see what black women want or what disabled women want or what Scottish women want um, and sort of allowing communities and organizations who work in those areas to kind of utilize the the, the stuff that we've done and um find out people find out from specific groups what they want um i think in terms of sort of interacting with politicians um this definitely isn't the end of the campaign so we i think we're thinking about turning the eight key themes into a pledge um for mps to sign and for, for groups to kind of lobby them with um because i think you're right like if there are eight key themes that unite um, such a vibrant cross-section of, of women, that shouldn't go unheard. Um, and politicians do need to be made aware of that. And I think be held to account on that. You can find the whole report at thisiswhatwomenwant.org. And as I mentioned in our chat, I'm not very good at reading reports, but this is so well put together with really interesting analysis from June Erica Dury, uh, Polly Neat, the CEO of Shelter, and many, many more, as well as some really fascinating snippets of responses and amazing artwork and design from a number of uh, brilliant artists too. Um, I blitzed through the whole report in about 25 minutes, so I would highly recommend you taking time out to give it a read. Uh, what Women Want 2.0 are also on Twitter at WhatWomenWantXX. And on Facebook at What Women Want 2.0. And Charlotte can be found on Twitter at Char, C H A R, Chorley. So go follow them all. Right, there's not really time for a headlines bit this week. So instead, here are some. The UN has said that the UK may have breached human rights in one of those comments that can only be responded to with, well, duh, you think? Leilani Farha, the UN Special Rapporteur, who I think is someone who wraps the news, uh, has said human rights standards in terms of housing might have been breached with the Grenfell Tower, as well as the ways in which residents' views have been neglected since the awful event. It's great that Farha has made these comments, though whether or not the government will actually pay any attention is a different matter. I mean, in 2013, her predecessor in the role told ministers that the bedroom tax had to be abolished as it violated human rights, and they just said she was meddling in their business. Then, three years later, they had to backtrack on bedroom tax and abolish it entirely. So, fingers crossed, Grenfell residents might finally get looked after and treated properly by, uh, 2021. Shit. 230 court buildings in England and Wales have been sold off since 2010, which is great news for budding new criminals. New analysis say the sales amount to a total of 224 million. But two-thirds of that was just from the sale of 24 London courts, while the rest of it over here on eBay Corner, for example, Eli Magistrates Court was got rid of for a quid. A Magistrates Court for a quid? Can you believe it? I've never found one of those in Poundland before. Most of the properties earned less than the average house price, and ultimately all this selling off of courts has done is create longer travel times both for defendants and witnesses, meaning hearings will take longer to do and courts are more likely to be overcrowded. The original excuse for these sales from the Conservative government was that crime levels are falling and the number of court cases were less, plus the digitisation of courts would mean video hearings could be done. I'm not sure I like the idea of that. I mean, if I was on trial for something, I wouldn't want to know the jury had me in the corner of their screen while tweeting away and trying to buy Beyonce and Jay-Z tickets on another tab. 
The Justice Select Committee has written to the Ministry of Justice pointing out this increase to travel times and asking for justification for all the sales, but the MOJ are adamant that they're making it more convenient to use overall. And hey, I do guess that makes sense. It would be so convenient, you know, to say get a quick court-based FaceTime in just as you're boarding a plane to leave the country so you definitely don't miss it. Unite official Jenny Formby is going to be Labour's new General Secretary, the worst of all the military positions. This happened after John Landsman, one of the fans of Momentum, withdrew from the race with a statement about how his interest in running was mainly to open up a debate about how to encourage all Labour members who felt they might be up to the job of General Secretary to apply. And now that the NEC is already discussing that possibility, he can step down. As is the case with the new selection of Jenny Formby, the General Secretary is selected by the NEC, subject to approval at the next party conference. And it's a pretty serious position, being in charge of employing staff, as well as being responsible for all campaign strategies and running the party conference, amongst many other duties. Landsman and Momentum's objection to this was that, by this position not being open to election like the leadership, it just panders to, as they call it, old machine politics, which sounds a lot like a subtweet about Theresa May. There were also some concerns that by having a Unite official such as Formby as General Secretary, it would mean unions held too much power over Labour. Basically, left-wing were fighting left-wing in a move that I like to call, no, you're not the opposition because you oppose even yourselves. Anyway, it's all sorted now, and who knows, in but a few years, any Labour member might be able to have a go at being General Secretary, and then we'll all gasp in horror as Ross Kemp gets it and insists on dressing as an actual general and only holding conferences in war zones. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. agenda so domineering that they insist on taking up two-fifths of the term for women all for themselves. In recent months, the issue of gender inequality has been quite prevalent in the news, with the Me Too movement, the highlighting of the gender pay gap across many pay sectors, and the representation of women in society and media now being questioned in a way that it didn't used to. Meanwhile, the notion of gender as fluid is becoming ever more widely accepted, even though I'm still certain based on my omittings that my gender is gas. 
And if you're a libtard snowflake like me, then you'll see all of this as a damn good thing. And that's even though I am one of those men things. You know, the men things. They're like women, but they reply to tweets with, actually, I think you'll find that. I'm a firm believer in equality, though I will admit that that is mainly because I think we're all shit as a species and I often can't believe that dolphins haven't taken over yet. But usually with the progression of equality, you'll hear someone shouting, but what about the men's? And it's usually from someone who looks like a leg of ham complaining about the fact that the woman they've just shouted abuse at won't make them a sandwich anymore. But actually, I think that you'll find, um, sorry, that Actually, what about the men's is, to an extent, a valid question, as it seems the patriarchy and the concept of alpha males and masculinity is very damaging to the weaker sex, and by that I mean men, as well. Men in the UK between 20 to 49 are more likely to die from suicide than any other cause of death, and in 2016, three quarters of all suicides in the UK were men. That's some seriously bleak stats, and it means that away from your misogynistic shoutings of evil Toby Jug MP Philip Davis demanding some sort of men's rights that hark back to the 50s, there are actually some serious issues of men's needs in terms of mental health and societal demands that really need looking at. So this week I spoke to storyteller, writer and podcaster Dave Pickering. In 2015, Dave surveyed 1,000 anonymous men about their views on patriarchy and masculinity, which he then made into a show for the Edinburgh Fringe called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. They explored the results of the survey as well as more personally what being a man meant to him. As he puts it, and I've stolen this directly from his blurb, it's not about how men are the problem, but about trying to change the systems that surround and contain us. Dave is now working on a book through Unbound and he very kindly took time to tell me all about it and his views on the effects of toxic masculinity on politics and society as well. Now, I should do a warning here uh, that in the second part of the interview, sexual assault is mentioned briefly, but not in detail or anything I'd hope you'd find too upsetting, but heads up just in case that might affect you. If I didn't know Dave, I would find, I have to say, this whole topic pretty difficult to talk about as many of my views on it are based on the men's right activists that bark about online. But trust me, this isn't at all like that, and I'm sure you're going to find it a very, very interesting chat indeed. Here is Dave. I, I want to start by asking you um, just about your book, really. Let's start there. I think that's a good starting point. Tell me about why you surveyed a thousand anonymous men and uh, what it is that you learned from the results because i've had a read of quite a few of the results and they are right. absolutely fascinating <laughs> they are they are really fascinating um i was really surprised at how fascinating uh, that part of the project became because uh, the reason that i decided to do it was because i was i was researching a show about masculinity i was thinking about masculinity myself and the, the main problem I had was I, I didn't know how to define masculinity. Um, like I, I say in the show, masculinity seems more like something that defines me than something that, that I have a definition for. Um, and so it originally came from, I thought, well, how can I get a better definition of masculinity? Like maybe I should ask some men because uh, men know a bit more about masculinity in general, uh, I feel, than I do uh, as someone who certainly at, at school didn't uh, conform to the uh, to the acceptable uh, versions of masculinity that uh, that kind of real men, in inverted commas, uh, are able to access. So I thought I would ask men. Um, and because I was asking men, uh, I thought I would add in some other questions. And I sort of created those questions slightly provocatively to a certain extent they they are kind of pro provocations as much as questions it's it's not a it's not a scientific or rational survey like i 
I, I didn't want to situate myself within that that kind of objective uh, patriarchal masculine perspective of like this is science uh, and I wanted more to get kind of emotional uh, responses from people and uh, it worked in that respect very well uh, there are some things I would have done differently about it but basically you know the, the survey asked men to define masculinity but it also asked them to define patriarchy uh, to talk about how they've been hurt by patriarchy to uh, talk about how uh, they've hurt other people uh, by patriarchy and also some other kind of questions that were based around the kind of internet meme uh, kind of discussions around feminism and masculinity that have been going on. So kind of talking about do people think that misandry exists and uh, talking about uh, like how do you define yourself? How do you see yourself? Um, and uh, one of the one of the options for how you define yourself was a uh, nice guy which i feel is a little bit of a mean trick to have <laughs> played on 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 the men because uh, some of them definitely didn't realize the kind of political weighting of, of nice guy in in the modern moment what that has come to mean uh, so I, I apologize to those men um, but certainly the responses on the survey really range really wildly uh, from different kinds of perspectives on masculinity uh, like 15% of the men who filled in the survey don't believe that patriarchy exists the rest do um, but the ones who do believe it exists it doesn't mean that they think it's a bad thing. Um, some of them are very pro-patriarchy. Because uh, I guess it was anonymous, and it was I shared it through social media. So it kind of began with the kinds of men that I hang out with. So lots of kind of uh, sensitive, feminist, uh, liberal-thinking men uh, trying to kind of grapple with, with, with masculinity is how it began. But at some point uh, towards kind of halfway through doing the survey, men's rights activists got wind of the survey. And then uh, it's, you know, so a lot of people have, have filled it in who really, really angry about the survey. There's a lot of kind of like um, anti-survey responses within the survey. It's kind of quite weirdly meta in that respect. Yeah, well, it's, it's really interesting that there's sort of uh, looking at the, the question of how do you, how do you define pa uh, patriarchy? There's a number that kind of say it's, you know, where men are oppressing, uh, where men oppress women or a lot of dick swing or whatever and then you have some that are very poetic like a series of hard embroidered cushions or something like that and then you have a, yeah a number that just say it's a load of nonsense or it's a conspiracy and you go oh god who are you right <laughs> which is is fast it's a fascinating read to kind of see the differences between those well, there's a lot of men as well who uh, answer the questions by saying, yes, patriarchy exists, but not in the UK. It's those bad countries over there, like coded, like uh, like Islamophobia within this kind of statement of like, yeah, those backwards countries, they're the patriarchies, not like us, in, uh, like uh, enlightened Western uh, men who haven't got patriarchies, uh, which is, you know, not something I agree with, but I think it, it does show the way that men... Uh, can see maybe the bad behavior of some men but not others you know how we disguise uh, our own society by looking at the flaws in other societies that we perceive 
Um, and that was an interesting strand within it. I mean, there, there are loads. I mean, it really is really fascinating, the survey. Like, I feel like, um, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm offering it as a kind of open source resource online. And I feel like people who understand data a lot better than I do uh, will get some really interesting uh, information from investigating those those surveys. So I hope that, that people with more skills than me uh, take me up on that. Although I will be doing more analysis myself uh, when I kind of adapt it into the book and uh, t talking a lot more about like the process of it and things like that. But yeah. Sure. And it's, it's, uh, I was going to ask that, do you, you know, it, I think it's quite obvious, I suppose, how, uh, and, and probably depressing, how obvious a, a patriarchal st structure can help men uh, and how it has done over many years and still is in, in work and pay and sort of uh, positions of power and things like that. Um, it's less obvious how it can negatively affect them. And, and I say less obvious in that uh, it might be obvious to individuals, but as a sort of societal understanding, it is a lot less obvious. So how, how can the patriarchy be negative towards men? Well, I think that's an interesting thing. I think it's almost like a symptom of patriarchy that it presents itself as not being able to be negative to men. Like, it, it is absolutely true what you say, and, and, and I, I absolutely endorse that uh, patriarchy privileges men in loads of different ways. Um, but there are loads of ways that patriarchy harms men but because we don't see uh patriarchy for what it is we don't see those things as patriarchy i would say like like bell hooks who i kind of uh, took as the, one of the big inspirations for my show uh, talked about how men don't talk about patriarchy at all and don't don't see it even though it's the thing that affects them the most and like harms them the most in their everyday life so like like ideas of like not showing your emotions or only being able to show certain kinds of emotions. Like I think men are allowed to show anger, but we're not allowed to show vulnerability. We're not allowed to show sadness. We're not supposed to cry. That's not something that real men are supposed to do. Um, and you can see this in like very high suicide rates that men have, like how patriarchy can, can damage men in that respect. And also it says men need to be the provider. We need to be the ones making the money. And that's another factor that, that, that can contribute to people uh, committing suicide. Like if you feel like you can't talk to anyone, you can't share your emotions, but that everything depends on you. That's a very lonely and uh, uh, dangerous place to be. I think also if we look at like how patriarchy kind of hurts men, you know, the prison industrial complex and the prison system in general is, is one of the big examples of that. Like men uh, commit more violence, yes, but men are also incarcerated much more highly. Uh, and, you know... You, uh, part of that as well is like the violence that men experience in their childhood, the violence that boys experience that kind of condition men to be men uh, and to not show our emotions. Like one of the things that makes it hard to, to see patriarchy as hurting men is that adult men have a lot of power but men begin as boys and, and boys don't have power. Um, and that's where I think a lot of the damage uh, that men have through patriarchy happens. Like when they're children in their 
homes and when they're uh, children in their school lives. That's where I think men are really harmed by patriarchy. But it, I mean, it goes to all areas. Like it, it goes from the like trivial to the to the really really important, or at least I don't know. Like trivial is maybe the wrong word, but mundane. Like uh, when I did a, a a version of my show recently, um, an audience member who was a man said, uh, "Men aren't allowed to have sensory experiences. We're not allowed because I, you know, my show talked about how." Uh, in the summer, men can't wear dresses to keep cool uh, because that's not something that society expects. But he was saying, yes, but also, like, what about smell? What about touch? What about all of the other senses? Like, men aren't supposed to have perfumes in the same kind of way that women do. Like, men aren't supposed to, like, enjoy their bodies in certain kinds of ways, whereas women are expected to uh, present their bodies. Like, they're, pre they're expected to be sensory, even if they aren't sensory like everything i'm saying about men uh, people should assume that there's an equally negative if not much more negative uh, consequence for women by any of these rules like men are supposed to be one way women are supposed to be another and both of those social scripts aren't adequate for for being human beings and also you know, by saying men this way and women that way, I'm buying into this binary idea of gender that we've been sold by patriarchy, that men are this, women are this, and there's no in-between. And, of course, there are loads of in-betweens, like, not just in terms of the way that people experience things, because uh, like, I think there's loads of variety in, in what cis men uh, are and how we experience the world, but there's, there's not just cis people. There's, you know, trans people, non-binary people, people who are in between those two spaces in terms of how, how people define themselves and see themselves, but even on a science level, in terms of biological sex, which people like to say is binary, first of all, there's intersex people who are not uh, either male or female, and so they exist and are an equally important gender, even if they are not, um, or, or rather an equally important sex, uh, rather, <clears throat> even if they are not kind of, um, that there aren't as many of, of that sex is a real sex, even if it's a small one. But like on a scientific level as well, like chromosomes suggest that there's lots of different factors that aren't just XX, XY chromosomes. And so scientifically, scientists are talking about like there might be six or more sexes, like determined on what, what combinations of chromosomes there are. So even, like, whatever metric you look, like social, political, scientific, like, binary sex and binary gender just seems more and more, like, you know, a flawed concept, which humans shouldn't feel too bad about. Like, we had to think the world was flat before we could realise it was round. Like, it's, it's okay to have got it wrong. Um, but, like, if you also, if you look back through cultures, if you look across cultures and through history, like, um, binary gender is a relatively new concept, and it's a, a particular concept within a, a particular part of the world. Like, uh, colonial forces... Uh, imported binary gender to a lot of countries that didn't have it uh, in existence before or to at least communities within those countries that didn't have it before like uh, when colonization of Africa or the colonization of Native Americans happened uh, a lot of kind of different ideas about gender and sex were completely like discarded for, for this very relatively new idea that that people with some power uh, had and that that's that's another part of the kind of wound i think that patriarchy is on everyone because i would like to say as well like patriarchy is not just one thing i think it's there's a lot of different kinds of patriarchy and it's one 
one oppressive force within many. Like in my show, I talk about uh, kiriarchy, which is the kind of collective noun for systems of oppression. So like uh, I always kind of say like like a, a flock of sheep, a murder of crows, a kiriarchy of oppressions. And so like patriarchy goes hand in hand with white supremacy, with capitalism, with ableism, with like... Uh, anti-trans, uh, you know, transphobic thought, like all of the different kind of isms that are useful to find, uh, to talk about, uh, you know, patriarchy is one of them and it functions within those wider systems. But I think the difference between patriarchy and many of those systems is that uh, many of those systems only flow one way. Um, so being a white person doesn't really oppress me very much. I mean, I, I used to say it doesn't oppress me at all, but I think in some ways, maybe very minor, like mild ways it does, because it kind of, uh, kind of limits my uh, imagination or limits the way that I can interact with other humans. But as a general level, being white doesn't oppress me. Whereas being a man, I think, can absolutely oppress people. Like, it doesn't just flow one way. It flows in lots of different directions. And, and it's easy to think, like, men are the people who make patriarchy. But it's not just men who make patriarchy. All genders do. Like, women socialise men as much as men do. So women say man up quite a lot. Um, some women, not all women. <laughs> Hashtag. Um, <laughs> But, like, you know, we're all equally responsible for creating the social rules that we are bound by. Um, but we also, that means that we all collectively can come together and, and together change those social scripts that we've got. And so I think there's a lot of hope to be found within seeing this, not just as, like, men are the bad guys and women are the oppressed group, but actually how are we all co-creating this oppressive uh, system that oppresses everybody in different ways, um, and some people more than others, uh, and particularly, like, the more power you have in other ways as a man, the less oppressed by patriarchy you become. So I would say that working-class men are more oppressed by patriarchy than middle-class men. Like, if you look at working-class men, they're made into, like, literally objects of uh, industry. They're, they're objectified in a different way from women. They're made into tools to, like, forcibly extract things from the earth, you know? Like, and, I mean, obviously, now... now the, in terms of working class men, the most oppressed working class men are ones who are not, you know, within uh, the UK and similarly wealthy countries. There are oppressed groups in, in other countries, but they will be pre predominantly men if labor is, is what is being kind of, well, if physical backbreaking labor is involved, then it will be men being pushed into that. And then another way that men, men are harmed, again, is like we're made into literal weapons in terms of, you know, the army, in terms of, you know, physical fighting in general, um, but specifically, like, men are, are conscripted often or, like, pulled into uh, forces that, that put their lives in danger and harm other people. Um, and, you know, I think it is, it is terrible to kill other people, but it's also, uh, for those people who you've killed, but it's also a, a massive uh, weight on you if you're forced to kill people for money or for, for uh, you know, just for having a fascist system that pushes you into, into being violent. 
So I think, you know, men are really harmed in so many ways, but the ways that men are harmed are quite often uh, ways that are kind of invisible because it's just assumed, like, it's it's natural for men to be the, the ones in the army. It's natural for men to be the ones who are, who are engaged in labour. It's, you know, all of these things. This idea of natural uh, can disguise... Um, how people are being oppressed by gender. We'll be back with Dave in a minute, but first... The EU have frozen Brexit talks because they too are so fucking sick of talking about it. I mean, probably. I mean, that's not what they've said. They said it was because the British government has to sort out a realistic solution to the Irish border, but I reckon that is just a cover for them thinking, holy fuck, how can we get one week off from discussing tedious shit with unprepared idiots? I mean, sure, the Irish border is still the big problem, and some solutions have popped up, such as the proposed Smart Border 2.0, which I think is a border that when you drive through, you can shout, hey Alexa, my goods are all right, yeah, and she'll either say yeah, or she'll call for drones to fuck you up, and then she'll do that freakish laugh as you die. I mean, as you can probably tell, I haven't actually read what the Smart Border 2.0 is, but I do know it would involve some sort of pre-registration, which the Irish T-Shock, and definitely the model for those little card toys you draw hair on with iron filings and a magnet, Leo Vradica, he said, nah, we're not having that. So now the UK government are going to have to come up with something else, like say a smart border 3.0 with maybe a better pixel camera and face recognition or something. So I guess these Brexit talks may be delayed for some time. Any chance of a smart department of exiting the European Union 2.0, please? Please? In Fun Brexit Exchange of the Week, Chancellor Philip Hammond told the EU that it is in their mutual interest for both parties that financial services are included in a free trade deal. But EU President Donald Tusk said, no. Then Philip Hammond said, but you've done similar agreements in the past. And then the EU said, no, we haven't. They don't exist. I'm starting to think that the next Brexit negotiation talks will start with Michel Barnier asking if anyone has actually researched anything and as the UK team dither about, he'll just hold out his palm and tell them to talk to their hand because the face ain't listening before playing on his phone till they leave. The Commons Brexit Committee have released the Brexit impact reports that were leaked to BuzzFeed and then Sky News and, well, surprise surprise, it's not great. I mean, it is great if you say, like, Schadenfreude and live somewhere other than the UK, but otherwise, not great. Every possible trade deal explained and investigated over the 29 pages results in the UK being worse off than before, with the largest effect being on chemicals, food and drink, clothes, manufacturing, cars and retail. So the good news is, as long as we're all happy to be naked, starving and walking everywhere, we should be fine. Hooray! Apparently, the Commons Brexit Committee have still held back the final four pages, which I can only assume just have weird scrawled charcoal drawings of demons suffering and bizarre incantations. Still, the UK have offered everyone's favourite rock after the, aka Gibraltar, barrier-free access to its finance markets post-Brexit. Which is a bit like saying, hey, if you want, you can come round and play with my dead pets whenever you like. The UK wants Gibraltar to have the same deal that we do post-Brexit, even though I'm not really sure what they've done to deserve that. The EU, though, is insisting that Spain will be able to stop any future trade relationship that would apply to Gibraltar. So basically, the UK is going to have to be real nice to Spain when it comes to trade deals, or the rock could become a very hard place. And for anyone who thinks who gives a Barbary macaque, well, one in five British drivers insures their car with a company based in Gibraltar, so this whole thing could be a car crash on several levels. 
So that's the general chat this week, but two things that are very worth looking at Brexit-wise. One is that Labour leader Jezza Corbs said during his speech to the Scottish Labour conference that Brexit would stop big companies importing cheap labour to undercut wages. Now, apart from the fact that that was part of a speech that also included him accusing May of tying the UK to EU rules, and overall sounded a lot like the softer Brexit stance Labour was taking last week is now one he's immediately backtracked on, Corbyn's comment is hugely problematic in itself. Firstly, there is little to no evidence that immigration affects the wages of UK workers. Admittedly, most studies are a few years old now, but one study from 1992 to 2014 said an inflow of immigrants the size of 1% of the UK population leads to just a 0.2% decline in the wages of the 5% lowest paid workers. But firstly, for immigration to be the size of 1% of the UK population, it needs to be a lot higher than what the UK has had in some time. But also, that study was done before the not really a living wage was introduced. Not only that, but a number of other studies said actually immigration increases wages by a small percentage. And again, most studies say that because people who come to the UK for work are of working age, they tend to contribute more in taxes and social contributions than they take in benefits. And if we didn't consider foreign students as part of the overall immigration statistics, like the government do keep insisting that they do, there'd be 139,000 fewer immigrants every year that wouldn't be considered as not working because they're quite clearly studying and possibly also working. So by repeating this myth that immigration affects UK workers' pay, what on earth is Corbyn trying to do? He hasn't just decided to go for the if-you-can't-beat-them-join-them method, has he? Just trying to increase Labour's poll point share by doing, say, policies Tory and UKIP voters might want to hear? Weird. I mean, if he lumps in something about gay sex being bad and Scottish independence in his next speech, then that is exactly what I'm calling is happening. It does mean, though, for Labour voters that we are back to square one on what on earth the party's Brexit stance actually is and if it's a stance at all or just squirming around on the floor wondering what way up they are. And lastly, France have signed a deal with India worth $16 billion for deeper defence and security ties, with President Macron telling Prime Minister Modi that he wants India to be able to gain access to Europe through France, tweeting that he wants to double the amount of Indian students coming to the country. Firstly, this could mean a lot of Indian businesses relocate from the UK to France in order to stay within the customs union and single market, but also overseas students provide over £25 billion a year into the UK economy, so to lose any of that would be quite painful too. Boris Johnson tweeted Macron with all the tact of a pug falling on a keyboard, saying that we are proud too to have more than 14,000 Indian students coming to the UK in 2017. And then he put the hashtag, education is great in English, forgetting that his government is so proud that they lump foreign students in with overall immigration figures, as I mentioned before, despite very few of them staying on after their visas expire. And also he seems to have forgotten that a lot of French people can speak English too. So that's how one area of our post-Brexit trade is looking. In another, US policy experts have warned UK ministers that they will have to concede everything to get a trade deal with Trump's America, that Britain was in a weak position and would be used as a guinea pig for harsh US trade policy. So that's where we are this week. Talk stalled, reports looking awful, the opposition peddling bullshit and all our trade going to France while we let America send us whatever mutant chickens washed in Ninja Turtle bile that they want to send over or something. I'm not so sure this is taking back control so much as losing it behind the sofa while someone snatches our TV and sells it for a profit outside. And now, back to Dave. And just another warning that this is the bit of the interview that contains a brief mention of sexual assault. I, I kind of feel like, it's, in what you're talking about, like, do you feel like there's, um, and maybe this is too early a point to bring this question in, but I kind of feel like there's uh, hope 
in in the in the changes that are happening. You know, I kind of feel like we like um, I don't know when uh, when about or how old you are, uh, Dave. But I, I was born in 1981, so the 80s for me, me too. everything was right. So that's inc- it was incredibly masculine. The 18 was like the most you know masculine show possible, and He Man right. and all these, and you were brought up with that idea. Um, whereas I think children being brought up now, or at least I would hope, are you know there's a lot more say gender neutral clothing. There's a lot more uh, you know programs that kind of uh, focus on changing terms. Kids are a lot more switched on to transgender issues and things right. than they were before. Do you think that this is like? Do you think this this affects men of a certain age more than other ages? What I'm asking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> have we have we been brought up on this sort of diet of of alpha males and kind of that kind of toxic masculinity more than more than perhaps future generations might be? I mean, it it does it does definitely affect men at different ages in different ways like even the men who were brought up in the 80s like us have different attitudes to gender maybe than our parents did right and so that like i think different generations are affected by patriarchy in different ways and and create different social scripts for what it is to be a man and some of those social scripts are much more positive than others and i do think that where we have where we are with young people now like i I would listen to young people on gender much more than i I would listen to older people on gender um, because, like, yeah, they have they are breaking down uh, previous scripts and, and thinking in much more, in my view, enlightened ways. Um, I would caution against fully getting optimistic about it, though. I think that as things kind of push back against patriarchy, patriarchy also pushes back so as as we're seeing more enlightened thinking we're also seeing more and more um entrenched positions of patriarchal thinking men's rights activists we're seeing you know trump and pence elected in a, in a, in america we're seeing you know uh, our parliament full of men who don't like men and hurt men with their social policies as much as they hurt all other people with their social policies um so like I don't know, I don't know where we're going to end up. Like I don't want to say like it's all good because there is a lot of of pushback. And also, I think it's easy to think that some enlightened kids mean all enlightened kids. Like that, the, there's a lot of bubbles that people are being brought up in. And as much as some kids are being brought up in an enlightened bubble, uh, other bubbles around them may be less enlightened or whatever. Like, enlightened's a bit of a of a weird word. I don't really know why I'm using it, but like. I think that there's 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 different experiences of gender still happening that are um, not always as positive as others. Um, I hope though that we can keep on pushing and keep on changing, and that the younger people who have these new ideas will create better scripts, and that their children will create even better scripts. And you know, one day we live in a kind of beautiful utopia. But uh, you know, I, I think that the work to do now is to make sure that we push back against patriarchy now. And I think, or like, kind of relaxing into the fact that the youth might save us is a bit of a danger, particularly because. The, the, those young people might have enlightened views, but they're they're, they're not being brought up by people with necessarily uh, enlightened views, or they may be like their grandparents or their schooling environments. They may still be getting lots of toxic responses to being uh, more fluid with their gender experiences, or uh, uh, and those kind of things. I think you know when you look at trans teens, you know there, there's an epidemic of, of trans teens uh, killing themselves, and 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 so even if they are thinking in in better ways about gender, they're then running up against the fact that the people around them 
aren't. And that's a horrible kind of disassociating position to be in when you know who you are, but everybody denies who you are. So I think there's a lot there's a lot around that that's that's dangerous. And also I think that men in general are buying into this idea of like, oh, it's just too complicated, it's just too hard. Like like men used to have power now we don't what what are we supposed to do and it's like no men aren't uh, aren't seeing the liberatory op- options for rejecting patriarchy they're just seeing the the power that they'll lose or the, the the privilege that they'll lose um and so there needs to be a kind of change in that mindset in order that we don't have more young people buying into it and pushing back. Um, Yeah, and I think, you know, we're definitely in a time when young people are being radicalized into patriarchal um, organizations, uh, like, you know, white supremacy is radicalizing white young men. Um, You know, uh, Islamist groups are radicalizing uh, Asian young men. Like, so, like, men are being radicalized into violence uh, still, um, both in our societies and across the globe. So, yeah. It's well. It, it, I, I was sort of, as I said in my question, I, I worried that I asked you that question too early on uh, in the interview because there was possible glimmers of hope in there. Whereas what I wanted to move on to, where there's probably no hope whatsoever, is that like like what I find quite shocking at the moment, um, amongst all the other things, say that they've done, is how pre- prevalent sort of uh, toxic masculinity is in say the the Donald Trump's diatribes, as you sort of briefly mentioned. Um, U.S. politics has suddenly become more masculine than it's ever been. With them now again talking this week about possibly making uh, you know mike pence is saying about this banning abortions across america will be you know done in our lifetime or whatever and all this uh really anti uh just really sexist very anti-feminist stuff um and you know is do you feel that that's now uh, on the rise uh i suppose particularly in the u.s we've got it in a slightly different way here which we'll come to in a minute but um do you feel that's on the rise as a kind of reaction to the possible changing of, of gender stereotypes, or the, why, why is why is this happening, Dave? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's hard to say, you know, exactly why it's happening. There's loads of different reasons, I guess. Like, um, as much as I don't like the people who get power <clears throat> from these groups, like I don't like Trump and Pence. I mean, in fact, I think you know one of the definitions of kiriarchy could easily be the, the Trump Pence administration they basically tick every single oppressive box that exists and they are kind of the kind of poster children for uh systems of oppression coming together to to screw everybody over um but but uh, the their their supporters as much as i abhor them and uh, you know just let's just make it clear i'm pro punching fascists um <laughs> but uh, but i'm not pro feeling good about it when you punch them um and, and i guess that's the, the thing i do feel very sad for a lot of the men who who become radicalized because they do often have um negatives in their life often created by patriarchy i think like they they, they, they often will have like experiences of violence or experiences of of kind of oppression in various different kinds of ways that have led them to uh to to, to, to wanting power to feeling like uh, in the old days, men had power, which is a myth. Like, some men have always had power since patriarchy has existed, but that's not been all men ever. Like, um, not all men are in charge and have power, like, to use that that painful phrase. Um, and And so this idea that things were better for men in the old days is, in fact, itself nonsense. Like, my dad is uh, 94 
94, you know, life wasn't better for men back in, in, in his youth. It might have been uh, simpler in some ways for some men, like middle-class men who are following the scripts or working-class men even who are following the scripts may have felt like comfortable and, and like they knew where they were. But like, I think that part of the problem is that men are, are, are socialized kind of not to embrace change and, and not to uh, be allowed to express vulnerability in a useful way. So as soon as we feel threatened, we don't know how to how to process those emotions. And so I think that's what one of the things that often leads to uh, to, to the kind of radicalization of, of young people and 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 every you know, men of every generation, older men too. I mean, you know, it's primarily older generations that are uh, voting in Trump and Pence or, or voting in the Tory party in the UK. Um, so, yeah, like, the, I think, basically, I think patriarchy is to blame for the pushback against patriarchy as well as uh, for the existing conditions of patriarchy. Um you know, and other factors, loads of other factors, loads of other oppressive forces, like white supremacy is is a big important factor in, in the US. And, you know, a big part of it is like, why did white women vote for Trump? Because they felt threatened in similar ways to men feel threatened by the improvement in rights and uh, representation of, of people of color within America over the last like, you know, 20 years. So, I, I think this, you know, the similar things that we can find for a pushback in men can also be found, you know, for white people or able people or whatever other group. And I think that can help, you know, women to understand where men, why men become this way, um, because that maybe they can look at their own behavior as a white person and see that they are also susceptible to those kind of behaviors. Um, and I would work. I, I should also so make clear that whilst I'm making some analogies between race and gender, they aren't the same thing. They aren't. They don't function in the same way, and they too often get kind of linked together as being the same. So I just want to make that kind of uh, clarification in that in that in that part. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's, when, it's it, as you as you sort of end on that. I, I realise like it must be very frustrating for you in the way that I think you you, you approach this subject very delicately. Um, but it must be very frustrating for you that, for example, the, the, the idea of a men's rights activist, especially in the UK, well, and, and in the Western world at the moment, is is of a real arsehole who's very kind of anti-feminist yeah. and, yeah. and very aggressive, rather than say uh, like, like you say, trying to change the the norms of masculinity. It must be incredibly frustrating for you that that's the idea that we have of, you know, what men's rights should be. Yeah, I mean, it, that is frustrating. Um, and it's it's definitely true that, that one of the... I mean, I say this in my show, that one of the most frustrating things is, like, that the, the, they could be such a good thing. They could be such an important thing if they would just, like, actually ana analyse why men um, have negative experiences in within society rather than thinking that it's all the fault of feminism um like if they actually were men against patriarchy then they would be doing better for improving men's rights although i should say as well like i think that you need you know what i say in my show is we need a men's rights and men's wrongs movement we need to like at the same time as be talking as we're talking about the ways that patriarchy hurts people we shouldn't be ignoring the ways that patriarchy uses men to hurt other people like men you know we're in the middle of the me too movement like men can no longer forget or ignore the fact that that men hurt other people uh, particularly women but also men um and and all genders so like 
within all of that, I think that the men's rights movement has a slightly incorrect emphasis anyway, because it's only looking at uh, kind of ways men suffer. But also the the other thing that's really problematic about the, the men's rights movement is we mostly do have rights. Like men don't mostly need rights. Like we need liberation. We need uh, ways to kind of... Uh, overcome social scripts that we've been given and and ways to make our lives kind of nourish us better and and ways to kind of communicate with other human beings in a more kind of open and honest way that's all liberation kind of practice in terms of rights there are a few areas that men don't men don't have equal rights that is true like in terms of custody of children we don't have equal rights um although you know when we're talking about custody of children it needs to be remembered that one of the the things that it exists with around custody of children is a lot of men not taking responsibility for their own children like it's it's not as simple as just oh poor men aren't allowed to see their kids there are those men and you know they do need better rights but there's also loads of men making use of that patriarchal setup of those laws to avoid responsibility in fact that's probably why those laws were set up in that way in the first place um, and, 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 you know, the other area that in this country particularly, but in, in, in most countries probably too, uh, we don't have rights is in terms of uh, rape. Like, uh, it, it, there is, you have to have a penis to legally be able to rape someone by our law. Um, so it means that that invisibilizes uh, the rape uh, of, of men by people who have vaginas. And that happens. I mean, I've been raped by a woman, by a cis woman. Um, many men have done, have, have been, have been. And so I think that that's an area where we could fight for some rights. But there's only a couple of areas where rights are needed, really. I mean, apart from, you know, in, in other intersections so like obviously workers rights helps men and you know civil rights helps men uh, like you know there are plenty of, of, of black and working class men and trans men who other rights are needed for and they shouldn't be invisibilized but ultimately it's liberation men need really rather than rights um so all of the, and but the men's rights movement like they they just call themselves men's rights like they're not really very many of them i don't think actively fighting for men's rights in fact the the people i see fighting for men's rights like in the areas i discussed like in terms of rape or in terms of uh custody are women like uh are feminists right the very people that men's rights activists like rail against and say they're the problem like it's it's women who are working for better paternity leave for, for men, right? It's women who are uh, are advocating for for men's mental health, even like like the brilliant organisation Calm uh, that has been set up to help men's mental health was set up by a woman. Um, like like the the people that men's rights activists think are men's enemy are not the enemy. Uh, I would say the majority of, of of people who are the enemy of men are also men like they're men in positions of power who are harming other men with their policies like those are the men uh, that we should be fighting against or the people that we should be fighting against i mean obviously some of them are women like theresa may is a woman uh, i can't deny that but her policies are anti-women and anti-men in fact well anti-people policies um and so uh so yeah like those are the people we should be like fighting against not feminists who who are you know generally activist groups who don't even have kind of political policy making power anyway 
big thank you today for that chat. Um, I stupidly cut off the bit of the chat where Dave talks about his book. Um, that is going to be in the bonus chat that I'll release ASAP. But if you do miss that, then do go and pre-order and help his book get made at unbound.com forward slash books forward slash mansplaining hyphen masculinity. Dave also hosts and produces several excellent podcasts, including Getting Better Acquainted and Family Tree. And if you want to hear his live show that kickstarted the book, you can download that as part of the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. And there's also a short 15 minute version on Radio 4's Forethought podcast, too, on the episode called Liberating Men. You can find Dave on Twitter at GooseFat101 and I have to give him extra credit as Dave has also suggested several guests for this podcast before, which is hugely appreciated. Um, so if you'd like to hear 20 more minutes of our chat, including Dave's recommended follows, then please do subscribe to the show and it should land in your pod listening device imminently. And as I say every week, like a repetitive automaton, as I'm trying to get a job as a government spokesperson, if you have someone you'd like to recommend I interview or a subject you'd like me to find someone to interview about, please do let me know. At what if you want to review the show? We'll do it on iTunes or places you know. What if I want to see hello? Go to the Twitter at Parpol Bro or the Facebook group whose title is long or email me at partly political broadcast at gmail.com. Love you. And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for listening, which I think is all you can do with this show. I mean, you can't smell it, can you? What on earth would this podcast smell like? I'm going to go for a citrusy thing, but that is only due to my bitterness about life. Do send suggestions in and, of course, do donate too. Review the show on iTunes and all that. And do please spread the word about how much you and your ears enjoy the oral party that is my droning voice vomiting gags and interviews into your brain. Thank you to Acast for pod supporting and my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the music and regularly texting me to tell me our baby needs to be an Arsenal supporter. This may or may not be back next week, who really knows? But if it is, I'll be asking if it's true that Russian secret agents get away with murder because when they're done, they just hide inside multiple bigger people and then sneak off. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by ZZ's Classic Putin Pizza, with a large base covered by layers of secrecy and a variety of toppings depending on how you want the job done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.